Well, good morning again. We have made it to the end of our series in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we've been in this book for quite a while, or at least several months. Uh, we're wrapping up this book this morning. If you've, if you've been with us during this whole series, um, then you know that there's been a few themes that we've seen kind of come with this book, come throughout the book as we've been going through it. Um, Peter's writing a book to people who are experiencing persecution or suffering. So Peter's writing a book to encourage them. And I've found, at least in my, in my own time in this book, and I hope in yours as well, that this has been an encouragement to me as well. I hope it's been an encouragement to you also. So before we, uh, before we read our passage, which is the end of 1 Peter 5, let's pray together, and then we'll read and begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you promised to do through your word. As we come, Lord, we, we recognize we bring many, many thoughts and distractions, perhaps fears or concerns or worries with us that can cloud our mind and make us lose sight of, of you and of Jesus. And so we ask that you would take those today. We give those to you. Give our hearts clarity and focus pray that you would convict us of sin where we need to be convicted. We ask that you would melt us with a view of who you are. And we ask that you would comfort us with your grace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, let's read our passage today this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be reading the second half of verse 5 all the way through the end of the book, verse 14. Peter writes this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who, like, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Now, at the beginning of this sermon series, uh, we used the example of uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine talking about what it's like to follow a leader who's not afraid to stay with you and to go through whatever it is that he's calling you to do. The fact that Zelensky has still not left Ukraine permanently to govern from some safer place, I'm sure has had a very important effect on the troops and those who are fighting against the Russian invasion. Now, at that time, I was hesitant to use that example uh, because it was early in the invasion. Uh, I wasn't sure if Zelensky would stick it out, but he has. 
And so I think that is a powerful picture in some ways of what Peter wants us to see about Jesus in this book. And that is that there is no danger and there is no suffering that we will experience as Christians that Jesus did not go through himself. He went there first. And not only that, but what we can say as Christians with certainty is that at the end of our suffering for Jesus, that there's going to be a reward. And until that time, in the time now, Jesus will be with us. And so today in our final passage of this book of 1 Peter, we're going to see those same points. And another way of saying this that I, that I hope is, is one of the, the things that we take away from the book of 1 Peter is that Christ's pattern will prevail. I hope we see that as we, as we end today and also throughout the whole time of our book, our time in the book of 1 Peter, that the pattern that Jesus showed us will prevail. So we're going to look this morning at how our passage shows that to us in three different points. First... It's through humility that God brings us to glory. Second, we must watch for the adversary. And third, God promises to protect his people. And it's my hope today as we walk through these closing words in the book of 1 Peter that this pattern that Jesus has set for us would give us the confidence and the courage that we need to face whatever suffering that we might experience for the name of Jesus. So, with that, let's take a look at verse 5 and 6, the second half of verse 5 and verse 6, and our first point, that it is through humility that God brings us to glory. Peter writes this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, last week we looked at Peter's instructions to the elders of the church and to those who are younger in the church as well. But at the end of verse 5, you might have noticed this last week if you read ahead, um, he broadens this focus out to everybody in the church, no longer specifically related to either those who are younger in the church or to the elders. This is to everybody. And he instructs everyone, all of us, to clothe ourselves with humility which is a great word picture, this uh, this idea of kind of wrapping yourself with humility in your interactions with others. And that plays a really important role in shaping the way that our church body will interact with one another. You might have heard the phrase that uh, humility isn't necessarily thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Um, Not like a, a perfect definition, I think, of, of, holy, of humility, um, but there is a part of that, that that is really actually helpful here, I think. Um, among our church community, our goal as we interact with one another is not to bring attention or glory to ourselves, but our aim is to think of ourselves less as we magnify Jesus more. As we interact with one another, our goal is not to bring people's focus to either what we're doing, how we're serving, what we're going through, but our goal should be to, to, to point people to the Savior. And that kind of creates this, what I think is like a virtuous cycle in a sense, because the more that we see Jesus clearly from his word, and the more that we get to see him in our interactions with our brothers and sisters here, uh, the more we recognize that we don't need to to draw attention to ourselves, because there's something far better that our own attention and our brothers and sisters' attention can go on to, which is Jesus. I mean, it's not just towards one another, though, that we practice humility. You saw this looking down in verse 6. Peter says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
Now, uh, by using that phrase, mighty hand of God, uh, Peter's doing something kind of clever here. He's, he's, he's using that phrase as like a callback for people who know the Old Testament well to remind the church of the ways that God has saved his people in the past. And there's all sorts of points all throughout the Old Testament that speak about God's mighty hand as he brought, specifically, how did he brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, out of a place where they were experiencing a great deal of persecution because they were God's people. So I'm going to read through a few of these verses from the Old Testament. Uh, listen along. They won't be on the screen, so just listen as I, I read them. Exodus 32:11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn, against, burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Deuteronomy 5:15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Daniel 9.15 And now, O Lord, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, this day we have sinned and have done wickedly. He's speaking a confession there. And there's several more. That's just a few. There's several more in the Old Testament. If you go through and do a search for that phrase, mighty hand, uh, you'll see that it's referencing often God's saving works for his people. So what Peter's doing is he's trying to draw the church's memory back to say, you can see what God has done for his people in the past. He's seen when they were suffering. He's seen when they were persecuted. He's seen when they were struggling because they were his people. And in those times, he was very capable of rescuing them, and he did rescue them. And notice what Peter's actually commanding us to do here. The way that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God is by casting our anxieties onto the Lord. Now this idea of, of humbling yourself before a king is one that we probably all have like some degree of familiarity with. Like that, the idea of kissing the king's ring or having to be on your knees in some way. Um, but notice here what Peter says, how we practice humility before our king. The way that we practice humility is not to humiliate ourselves in some way, but it's to give, Christians humble ourselves by giving him or casting, throwing our anxieties on to God because he cares about us. Now that word cast is kind of gives the idea of like throwing a cloak onto a donkey is another place that word's used. Right? We know that, the, that a donkey can handle a cloak that you throw on top of it. Um, and so Peter's saying, God can handle the anxieties. God can handle your fears. So the way that you humble yourself before God is by giving him your anxieties, giving him your fears, and at trusting him in the midst of our suffering. Now, one of the great gifts that God's given to all of us is he's made it so that every person in this room at one point or another has been a child. All of you have been children at some point. And all of you, at some point, had to ask an adult, whether that was a parent or someone else, uh, to help you with things. And you had to trust them to deal with certain things that you couldn't handle as a child yourself. And there's something inherently humble about having to ask someone for help. But there's also something enormously comforting, knowing that the one that you ask cares deeply for you. And will use what you bring him as a way to paint a greater picture of his faithfulness in your life. By casting our anxieties onto the Lord, it breaks us out of relying onto our, on ourselves 
and helps us learn how to rely on God more. Now, it's worth noting that word anxiety is a very, very broad set of definitions today, right? It's used quite a bit in a lot of different contexts. And given the context of this letter, I think it's safe to trust that Peter here is speaking specifically of the anxieties that come from persecution for the sake of Jesus, right? So if you follow Jesus, there will come points where you are going to suffer in some way for that. Jesus has promised that to us. In our context, that, that could look, look like uh, losing a relationship with somebody or th- a relationship being threatened, job prospects being threatened in some way potentially. In the case of these early churches, it could have been that they might have actually been in danger of losing their life because they were followers of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying there are, um, uh, there are kinds of anxieties that we don't give to God. He wants to know all of our worries. But what Peter's talking specifically about here um, is that we practice humility before the Lord by giving him our concerns about the future that come as a result of us following him as our Lord. That is how we practice humility. The one who's sovereignly overseeing our lives will take those anxieties and, as Peter says, at the proper time, he will then exalt us. This is the way of the cross. Right? The way to glory is through humility. It's the same pattern that Jesus set for us. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Savior was no stranger to this, His humility took him all the way to the cross and to his death. The God who invented wood and whose character was the basis for everything that we call justice was sentenced unjustly by his creatures to die on a cross made of wood. That was the humility that Jesus showed on the cross that he experienced for our sake. But we know that that humility is not where the pattern ends. The need to give God our anxieties about the future is only temporary because there's a day coming when he will exalt us, just as he exalted Jesus. The the verses in Philippians continue with this, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the humbling that Jesus experienced before the Father was followed by the Father exalting him. And while Jesus is the only one who's going to be worthy of worship for eternity, we also will be exalted one day when Jesus comes again, and we are raised to new life, raised out of the grave with new bodies, and are brought into glory with the Father. That's the pattern that Jesus has set for his followers, and it's the pattern that we know that we will follow as well if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, trusting him in our suffering, telling him our anxieties, and throwing those anxieties onto the one that cares for us. 
So that's the first command in these final words of Peter's letter. Let's move on to our next point in the next set of verses, which is to watch for the adversary. All right, Peter writes this in verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter's shifting the focus for a moment away from the church, and now he's shifting it onto the enemy, the devil, and how to defend against his attacks. Now, there's a, uh, there's a new movie coming out in August. I saw a trailer for uh, when during the NBA Finals. It looks like it, it takes place um, somewhere in, during, on a safari, probably out in Africa. Um, and at least from the trailer, it, what it looks like is it's a group of safari, people on a safari. Um, and they become this target for an angry lion who's going around just maiming people, killing them without eating them. And there's this scene that, I, that stuck in my mind where the, uh, one, of the, one of the people who's part of the movie is, is running to get back to the car, and you can't see the lion, you can't see the lion, you can't see the lion, and then he jumps in the car, slams the door, the lion hits it, almost breaks in, and he's you know, just safe with his daughters. It's kind of one of those jump scenes, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know anything about this movie, I'm not recommending it, but my assumption is that it's the kind of movie where after you're done, if you go, to, if you go home at night, you're pretty sure that there's probably a lion around the corner in the dark, right, before you, when you're going to the bathroom. Which is kind of a creepy and gory, gory image, but that's what Peter wants us to understand when we think about the adversary, when we think about the devil. All of us are material creatures. We think about the world in very material ways. Uh, what's, what feels most real to us is what we can see or smell or hear or touch. And so it's easy to lose sight very quickly that there is a spiritual world around us. And in many ways, that spiritual world is actually more real than what we are experiencing in the material world around us because it's more durable. It's been a lo- around longer than anything we can see around us today. And there's a being... There's one particular being that's opposed to God that we hear the most about in Scripture, which is the devil, or the Satan, I believe is how you would technically pronounce it from the Old Testament, the Satan, which is the adversary. And this is a being that wants to draw worship away from God and wants to destroy the good world that God has created. In, Peter words, in Peter's words, the devil wants to devour you. In Luke chapter 4, Luke tells us about a time when this being came to Jesus to try to use all these temptations to get Jesus to worship it. The story is very wild in, in a lot of ways because you see that this being so arrogant that it thinks it can get the Son of God to worship it, which is sobering because if Satan thought he could get to Jesus, then he's definitely coming for us. But Jesus' response, I think, is quite comforting. He uses the Bible, he uses God's words to us to drive the devil away, which is how we resist him. It's how we remain firm in the faith. As Peter says in verse 9, when the devil comes, and he will, and he brings pressure on you to abandon your faith or to compromise your following of Jesus, or to despair that God might not be who he says he is, he might not be good, 
That's when we are in most need of the weapon of Scripture. Scripture is our main weapon in the fight against the devil. Now, you may be sitting here and you may have this feeling that you, uh, you don't really know how to do this. You don't know how to use the Bible effectively as a weapon against the evil one. Or you don't think it will really make that much of a difference when the temptations do come. Maybe you've tried and you feel like you still fall into sin or discouragement or whatever it may be. So if that's what you're thinking right now, if that's what you're feeling, just a couple brief encouragements to you. First one, um, tell the Lord those feelings. Tell the Lord the feelings that you aren't certain if this is working. And ask him for help. And ask the Spirit to use whatever may be in your mind that you've learned from Scripture, whether you can you know, consciously fully remember it or not, ask the Spirit to bring to mind what Scripture you need at certain points when you feel the temptations coming. The second, um, if, if that doesn't feel like it's working, if you don't feel like you know enough for that, then ask a friend. Ask a friend who's a Christian to help you. Ask them to help you use Scripture to fight against temptation or discouragement. And if someone this week comes to you as a friend and asks you to help them with using Scripture in their life, don't be afraid of that. Do the same thing. Ask the Spirit to bring to mind what's needed from, from God's Word to help this person. And if you're not sure how to help them, then you go to another friend and ask them, how do I use Scripture in order to encourage this person? Now, the last little strategy Peter's giving us here to remember to stand firm against the devil is to remember that these trials are being experienced all around the world by all of our brothers and sisters um, all throughout the world. Now, I think pretty much all human beings uh, are prone to believing that their particular set of circumstances are kind of uh, unique to them and maybe unfair, that no one really understands them, no one really gets what you're going through. Um, there's this great line in the book uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Horse and His Boy where the main character, Shasta, um, has just uh, actually succeeded in this very important mission to, to warn the, a good king of, of a bad invasion by a bad king that's coming. Uh, but after he's done, he's kind of left alone, walking by himself in the woods, and he's, he's just getting discouraged, right? And he, and he has this, this very um, youthfully dramatic statement that I think is probably telling for all of us. He says this, I think that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Now, I think many of us at certain points might be able to resonate with that sentiment in some way. Um, the devil thrives. The devil thrives when we think we're alone and when we isolate ourselves from other believers. It's so much easier to pick people off when they aren't su surrounded by believers and when they aren't sharing with them and they feel as though they are by themselves in whatever their circumstances are. But what Peter wants us to do is to recognize that whatever sufferings we are going through, those are part of the, the battle that we're fighting with all of the church all around the world. In fact, that's the battle that's been being fought for centuries, for millennia, from all of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, all the saints who are in Christ. And that, that's, a, that's a very significant mindset shift because it shifts us from uh, feelings of self-pity right? No one gets me, no one understands me, to recognizing that you are part of a great battle, a battle for the souls of the world, and we are a part of that as we face the temptations and discouragements that the devil brings against us. 
Now it shakes Shasta out of his sadness and his, his pity party as he's walking. As he suddenly realizes he can hear breathing close to him. And as he remembers back, he's like, I'm not actually sure when this breathing started. And it terrifies him. He realizes he's not alone as he's walking in the darkness. And what he finds is that who's walking beside him is the great good lion Aslan. I recognize we're, I'm kind of mixing metaphors with the, the bad, um, devil is the bad lion. Aslan is the good lion, but you, you can follow. Um, Shasta, all throughout the book, had thought that he had this lion stalking him, trying to eat him. Right? It had shown up at different points, driven him in certain directions. But what he finds, what he finds out, is that the good lion, Aslan, who's the Christ figure in this book, has been protecting him his entire life from the moment he was born. It's been protecting him from things that want to eat him. It's been driving his steps in certain ways. And now was walking along beside him when Shasta felt that he was alone. Now because this is the final bit of this letter, the last thing Peter wants to tell us, the last thing that Peter wants these small churches to know is that they are not alone in their suffering. Although the devil is prowling and we have to watch for him, the God of all grace is there with us and he will not leave us. The great lion Aslan is protecting us as we make this journey. So this is going to lead us to our final point, which is that God promises to protect his people. So read down again with me verses 10 and 11. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter's final words to these churches are, are meant to kind of draw their minds upwards, away from their circumstances, away from what's going on in their lives, and place them onto God and onto God's promises. And so as we close our time in 1 Peter, that's where I want our minds to go as well. To, to, to finish our book by looking at what God promises to do for those who are his, those who follow Christ. Now we've seen over and over again in 1 Peter, Peter understands that we need motivation to persevere when suffering hits. We need motivation to continue forward in the Christian walk. And there, there's multiple parts to the motivations that Peter gives to us. One of them, Jesus has already been there. He's gone before us. He's already suffered these things for our sake. But also, that he, that there is a great reward for those who persevere through the trials when they suffer for the sake of the gospel. Which is why Peter can tell these churches with confidence to persevere through the suffering that they're experiencing for the sake of Christ. Because he knows a reward is coming. And we need to know that too. And that reward is the eternal glory in Christ and the promise that God will restore us, will confirm us, strengthen and establish us. So Peter's ending with the end in mind. He's ending the book with the end of all things in mind here. He's reminding us of the glory that's coming for those who remain firm in their faith, the eternal glory that we experience in Christ. And this is the final hope of the gospel. This is, this is the last part of the pattern that Jesus has set for us. As Jesus humbled himself, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. As Jesus was tempted, we will be tempted as well. And finally, 
as Jesus was brought back to life from the dead, as he went to be with God in heaven, also we will spend eternity having been resurrected and living in a remade earth in the presence of our God forever. So that is the hope of those who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation and who have given their lives to him as a living sacrifice. Now, if you haven't done that, if you have not given your life to Jesus, then this promise is not for you. You, you, this is not what some, this is not Peter's promise to you. It's only those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in Jesus, and who have chosen to follow him. But the promise can be for you if you do choose to give your life to him. There isn't a ton of hope to be found in this world in suffering without the promise, without some kind of promise, that it will be temporary and it will be worth it. And that is what Peter says Jesus offers to those who put their trust in into him. Now we've been using, you might have noticed uh, verses 10 and 11, we've been using these verses as a benediction for the past several weeks. And I've been ending our services by saying, may the God of all grace, etc., through the, through the rest of those verses. Um, I do want to make sure I point out to all of us, there's no may in what Peter says here. We've been using those as a benediction to bless, to bless our church as we go forth. We know those words are true, that they're true of those who know Jesus. But Peter's not saying there's any, there's any sort of like question involved in it. This is true. Peter says this is what God will do. This is the final hope of the gospel. Um, I want to make sure I point that out. He says that he will restore his followers. He will confirm them, strengthen, and establish them. Now each of those words, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, all of them, uh, there's, there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram if you kind of were to make a diagram of what they mean. Uh, but they all have to do with kind of building something onto a firm foundation, right? placing something on a sure foundation that won't be shaken. So actually that word established at the end is, is, a, is perhaps a good way to actually summarize the entirety of what Peter's trying to communicate to the believers at the end here. Um, and so this is the last promise that Peter gives to these churches, and it's the last promise that I want to give to us here. So if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear this loud and clear as we end the book of 1 Peter. If you feel weak in your faith, if you feel like you're unmoored, or if your circumstances are more than what you can handle, know that the God of all grace has promised that he will establish you one day. He will establish your faith. If you feel weak, God has promised that he will confirm and strengthen what weak faith you may feel that you have. And he will not let you fall away. So I encourage you, don't give up. Don't fall away. Don't allow discouragement to win your heart because the God of all grace has promised that he will be with you as you walk through this life all the way to the end. Something I've found very encouraging as we've gone through this book of 1 Peter is that it's worked as a, a, to kind of stretch my understanding of God and of what Jesus went through for my sake, and in particular of what Jesus was willing to go through to save us, what he was willing to go through to bring us to the end, what his love for us made him willing to do. Because suffering can, can um, <laughs> potentially suffering can make us in the wrong moments question that a bit. Question who God is. Question his love for us. 
or perhaps lose sight of God's goodness. But what Peter shows us so clearly is that whatever suffering we may experience for the sake of Jesus, Jesus went there first. Jesus already went there first, and he's with you now. Whatever we may face, Jesus went there first, and he is with you now because he loves you. Jesus went to every depth of suffering because he loves you. Jesus was willing to die to pay for your sins, to justify you before God, and to bring you into eternity with him because he loves you. And he will be with you whatever you might face in this life. So, Hope Fellowship, as we end our time in the book of 1 Peter, there's a few things that I want to have us walk away with, perhaps as, as a way to pray for our own church body as we take or as we walk away from the book of First Peter. First, that the Lord would give us the grace, as Peter says in, in the first chapter, to be able to rejoice when we are grieved by various trials, because we know what God's up to in our trials. We know what He's up to in our suffering. He's using them to make us lose sight of ourselves, to to force our dependence onto God himself, and then to transform those things into something that will bring even greater glory to God in the end. Second, when we do experience various trials and suffering, that the Lord would strengthen our minds not to be drawn to ourselves, not to shrink down to the level of our own circumstances, but to be placed onto our Savior and what he already walked through for our sake. And finally, kind of sum all these up, that the Lord would use any suffering of his saints at Hope Fellowship to bring us to eternal glory and to bring eternal glory to Christ. So those are what I'm hoping, I pray that we walk away with from the book of 1 Peter. So let's close in praying and we'll pray those things for ourselves. Let's join in prayer. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for Peter's work in writing, the ways that you used Peter. You used his life, his circumstances to to write these words, your spirit write these words for our sake. And Father, we do ask that you would give us the grace to rejoice when we are grieved by trials. Remind us that Jesus has gone there before us. He went there for our sake and remind us that he will be with us and that he will bring us to the end. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.